Hey, we're in part four of our series, Jesus, Magic, and Mojo. This series is about how to get your mojo back if you've lost it. Now, what is mojo? Well, in this context, it means an attractive quality helping you be successful. If a person has mojo, he or she has charisma, attractiveness, an ability to win the hearts of people. It's a charm, it's a spell, it's an invisible quality causing people to wanna be around you, to follow you, even to be like you. Now, what does mojo have to do with the church and Jesus? Well, if you were with us last week as I brought part three of the series, I did the best I could to explain it. I'll just kind of recapture a few moments of last week's message so I can kind of bring everybody up to speed, remind you a little bit of why we're talking about this. The church at large, we're talking about Big C Church, not just a local church, but the big church at large, goes through seasons where it has mojo. It attracts people, it has charm, auditoriums are full, lives are impacted, conferences are sold out, people are inviting friends, giving, serving, growing, etc. And the church goes through seasons where it loses its mojo. All those things I mentioned are challenging. Right now, the church at large around our world, especially in the U.S., has lost a lot of its mojo, its appeal, its attraction. How did it happen? I spent a long time last week walking through that, kind of how did we get to where we are and how we can recover. But this is a, kind of a, just a, a refresher for you. How did it happen? Well, the church has lost its mojo because the people making up individual local churches have lost theirs, you and me. In other words, many of us have lost our passion for the mission of the church which is to carry grace to every person on the planet, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they are, regardless of what they've done. We have forfeited our allegiance to the leader of the church, Jesus. We have refused to commit and love and serve the body, the other members of said local church. And because this is true, the local church has lost its attraction, its charm, its appeal to those outside the church. So this series is about how to recover our mojo. Preston brought part one, part two of the series. He did an excellent job. And then last week I brought part three. And during the message last week, I presented a formula. I don't really like formulas, but this is the best way to say it. Kind of a formula of how you experience a miracle. And we're talking about the big church at large, how to experience a miracle. Very simple. I said over and over and over again last week, you do what you can with what you have. God gets involved. Miracles happen. You do what you can with what you have, God gets involved, miracles happen. You do what you can with what you have, God gets involved, miracles happen. That's what we talked about last week. Kind of, that was the, the big picture of the church at large. Today, we're getting personal, okay? Going to bring it down from the big C church, going to talk about you, going to talk about you, going to talk about you. All of our individual lives, going to kind of get into the, how we think, how we feel, what's going on inside us. And here's what I hope to do. I hope to give you some inside information. I'm bringing you in close and helping you answer one question. I'm gonna spend the balance of this message answering just one question today, all right? And here's the question. What do I do when I wanna quit? What do I do when I wanna say, I'm out of here, I'm done? I'm not talking about just quit church. I'm talking about quit anything. Quit a marriage, quit a job, quit friendships, quit church, quit following Jesus, you know, whatever it is. What do you do when you want to quit, listen to me carefully. If you want to maintain mojo, 
you must develop the ability to stay inspired and maintain your direction when you experience little to no motivation. When everything inside you and outside you scream, quit, give up, it's not worth it, you're not built for this, you don't have to do this, you must learn how to quiet the voices in your head doing their best to convince you to quit. And I wanna do what I can today to help you. I wanna do what I can if you happen to be here this morning, whether you're sitting in this room or you're watching online or you're listening to this message, driving down the road, or you hear it a month from today. I wanna do the best I can to deposit into you some wisdom, some knowledge, so that you can figure out what to do whenever you feel like quitting. Now folks, over these last 30 years, I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to quit leading a church. I'm, I mean, say, I'm done. I'm finished. Forget it. Hang up my Bible, my microphone, pack all my books and boxes and say, I'm out of here and go find another line of work. Not, not because I'm tired. Everybody gets tired. It's not about just being tired. Not because I don't enjoy what I do. Most of the time, I love what I do. But because I've questioned whether what I do matters. You, you know, the feeling you get when you've given the best part of your life to something and then you wonder if it will return an investment? You know that feeling you get maybe when you we kind of look back at your life and say, wow, I've given 25 years to this job and I don't know if it was really worth 25 years or I've invested 15 years in this friendship and now she walks away, now he betrays me, now. Or I've invested you know, in my following of Jesus and kind of in religion and Christianity and I don't know if it's worth it. I'm not even sure I believe all these things anymore. You ever get to the place where you just look back and you think, ah, was it really worth all the emphasis that I placed, all the energy that I dumped? That's a difficult crossroads to get to. When you wonder if you're a fool, when you wonder if it's worth it, when you find yourself becoming cynical, when people that you've counted on and leaned on walk away and the emotional toll drains you. I mean, how do you maintain your mojo when you have difficulty finding motivation to keep going? Now, of course, my context is church and ministry and doing things religious. For you, it's different. What do you do whenever a friend betrays you? and you have difficulty trusting anybody again. How do you keep going? How do you make a new friend? How do you, how do you believe again? When, you, when the passion and the love you used to enjoy in your marriage just evaporated, what do you do then? How about when your career took a different turn from where you, where you thought you would be right now and you find it increasingly difficult to get up every morning? You find it difficult to go to the office every day. You find it difficult to climb in that truck one more day. You find it difficult to stand in front of those kids at school one more time. This is not at all what you signed up for. This is not at all what you wanted to do. What do you do when your faith feels like it's hanging by a thread and everything inside you wants to hold on to Christianity, but things aren't looking good. And if something doesn't change, you're done with Jesus, you're done with church, you're done with the Bible, you're done with all of it. How do you maintain your mojo? Positive movement forward, powerful steps into tomorrow, purposeful direction about life. How do you maintain it when inspiration is nowhere to be found? Now, before we get into some answers, we, we, we gotta discuss this. If I had to pick one reason these crises occur 
in people's lives and marriages and careers, etc. If I had to choose one, and there's a lot of different reasons this happens, but I had to choose the number one reason, just my observation over all these years, my own kind of looking on the inside, why do I struggle? If I had to pick one reason, here's what it is. Unmet expectations. Things just didn't go the way we expected they would go. When it comes to your career, you thought you would land your dream job. You would have much more money. You would be able to go here, go there, do this, do that, whatever. But somebody else got the job. You didn't get it. So you're stuck where you are for another five years or 10 years. Or you got what it is you thought you were going to love, but now that you got it, you don't love it. And you dread going in every day because it's not what you thought it was going to be. Or the supervisor who's in ahead of you is terrible to work with. And it just, ugh, every day. Marriage, we can spend all day talking about missed expectations there, right? You thought he was going to be much more romantic and much more accommodating. You thought she was always going to want to have sex every time you touched her. Kids, <laughs> all kinds of missed expectations there. If you got kids, you know what I'm talking about. Things never seem to work out the way you think. Churches, you expected the church to be filled with loving and kind and mature people with near-perfect leaders and ready to meet your needs at the slightest hint you were hurting. Friendships, you expected if you were loyal and you're loving and you're forgiving, then they would be also back to you. You expected you would have several close friendships now, but here you are in your 30s or 40s or 50s and you look around and go, wow, I've only got like one, maybe two. Spiritual journey, you thought you would keep growing and maintain a level of constant spiritual warmth. You expected the Bible to just open up to you when you had your devotions every day or you kneel in prayer. You expected God's presence to just be swirling around you and you would have answers to some of life's most perplexing questions and you would have answered prayers and yet you don't have all the things you thought you were going to have. And for some of us, we just kind of navigate around those things and go on with life, and we're overall okay. But for others of us, it has just bitter roots have taken hold of us. And it's turned into not just missed expectations, but we are deeply disappointed. We are disillusioned. And we're so disappointed and so disillusioned, we've considered dialing it in walking away, quitting, giving up. So if you are in that place, how do you get your mojo back? What do you do when you are standing alone? I mean, no props, no group of friends around you cheering you on. It's just you and the burning question, do I quit or do I keep going? You know, the disciples of Jesus, the original 12, man, they face these emotional dilemmas often. In fact, I imagine the expectations they had about following Jesus versus actually following Jesus, quite a gap in between those two things. You ever thought about that? I mean, they were under the impression when they first started following Jesus that they were part of a revolution that was going to upend Rome. They would be part of the physical kingdom of God and it was gonna just overpower everyone. And it was, you know, Jesus was gonna come riding on a horse and, and, and Rome was just gonna fall down and, and you know, bend to the new kingdom. And they were gonna weld some power. If you read through the gospels, you'll realize that sometimes they even had discussions about who was gonna sit on the right side of Jesus and, and have this power. And Jesus had to teach him that to be great in my kingdom is not to hold the sword. To be great in my kingdom is not to have a throne, but to be great in my kingdom was to wash feet. To be great in my kingdom was to forgive. Don't you think that was some missed expectations? Yeah. 
If you think the parables of Jesus are difficult to understand and apply now, imagine what it must have been like to hear those parables for the very first time. No no commentaries to read, no Bible studies to go through, nobody standing in front of you unpacking the parables. You hear them and you're confused about what they mean and you talk among yourselves. And that's why sometimes when Jesus was finished teaching, the disciples would just walk off, scratching their head in bewilderment. Imagine what it must have been like when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. They were the religious experts of the day and, and turned the, the you know, upside down sacred traditions and practices that the disciples performed their entire lives. And he just flips them upside down. Imagine what it was like when Jesus said things that made no sense. And they were like, what are you talking about? We're going to get into that in just a moment. Or what about when Jesus predicted his own death? Remember how Peter responded when Jesus said he was going to die? Peter rebuked him. Don't talk about dying, Jesus. And Jesus had to tell Peter that he was letting Satan use him. I mean, that was quite an interaction between Jesus and Peter because Peter's expectations were flipped upside down. How do you think the disciples felt whenever Jesus was arrested and then crucified? He died. They thought he was going to bring in the kingdom, and now he's dead, and he's placed in a tomb. How do you think they felt? The disciples faced rejection, persecution, loss of careers, ruined reputations, and eventually they were martyred. So when it comes to dealing with unmet expectations, confusion, disappointment, emotional storms, existential crisis, these disciples had experience. So how did they deal with it? Well, we don't know exactly how they dealt with all of those things that they went through, but There is one discussion that I'm going to walk through with you between Jesus and a group of his followers in the Gospels. It takes place in John. And it gives us a little insight into how at least one disciple named Peter dealt with his crisis moment. And it's presented to us in John chapter 6. And in this story, Peter experiences a crucial moment. He experiences a crossroads a moment when a few of his friends walk away from following Jesus, a moment when Jesus is being confusing, and Peter wonders, am I a fool for staying? Now, let me set the story up for you, and then we'll get to the details of it. This story that I'm going to walk through with you, this conversation that takes place between Jesus and a group of his followers happens the day after Jesus walks on water. Those of you who are familiar with that story, the disciples get in a boat, they go across the lake, storm happens in the middle of the night, they cry out, you know, Jesus, where are you, basically, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water. That walking on the water incident happens immediately after Jesus multiplies the bread and fish that we talked about last Sunday. So you just need to know this. This is the story that I'm getting ready to walk through with you happens immediately after Jesus walks on water, which happens immediately after Jesus multiplies bread and fish. It all happens like within a 24-hour period, all right? And the reason a conversation ensues is because the day after Jesus multiplies the bread and fish, they go looking for Jesus. They want him to do something like that again. That was really cool. You know how you multiplied the bread and fish and filled our stomachs up yesterday? We're getting hungry again. Could you do it again? That was really cool. And they start looking for Jesus. And you know where they find Jesus? They find Jesus with his disciples on the other side of the lake. And they're very confused about that because they remember after Jesus multiplied the bread and fish, he sent the disciples in a boat to cross the lake, but he didn't get in the boat with them. 
But the next morning, he's on the other side of the lake, and they can't figure out, hey, Jesus, how did you get from this side of the lake to that side of the lake when you didn't get in the boat with your disciples? They didn't know that Jesus had come walking to them on the water in the middle of the night. So a tension begins to build between the followers of Jesus and Jesus, and they ask him, how'd you get on the other side? Hey, did you perform another miracle? Hey, tell us a little bit about what you're doing. And this tension begins to build because Jesus calls them out because it, they act like they want to be with Jesus, but they don't really want to be with Jesus. They just want Jesus to do some more of that food multiplying thing because that was really cool. Let me show you this in the actual story. They come to Jesus and they start asking Jesus questions. And here's what Jesus says in John 6, beginning at verse 26. He says, Jesus replies to the crowd, I assure you that you are not, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate all the food you wanted. You're not really after me. You don't really want me to just do some amazing things with the power of God. What you want is you want me to fill your bellies again. What does that sound like? Sounds like kids, right? Doesn't matter how many times you feed them, they're hungry again in just a few hours. You gotta feed them again. You can cook a full meal, spend hours in the kitchen, prepare a delicious meal, they eat a little bit of it, a few hours later they want more food. Just want, what does it sound like? A bunch of children. And Jesus is saying to the crowd, you, you don't really want to see me do amazing things with the power of God. What you want is your belly's full. Then he goes into something really deep. He takes it way, way, way off what they're actually asking. He says, don't work for food that doesn't last, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the human one, Jesus, will give you. God the Father has confirmed him as his agent to give life. There goes Jesus, talking about spiritual things far beyond where they are. They just want him to multiply some more bread and fish. They want him to give us some bacon and eggs, probably not bacon, but they want him to give them something to eat, something really cool, do something again that will wow us, give us more food. And Jesus is talking about a food that goes way beyond just physical food. He's talking about spiritual food and it entices them into this discussion about what do you mean food that endures for eternal life? What does that even mean? So it gets into this conversation that I'm going to read to you in a moment. They question him about miracles, and Jesus elevates himself above Moses, which was a huge thing for a Jewish audience. He actually tells the crowd who's listening to him teach that he is the embodiment of the manna that came down from heaven in Exodus, and that piques their interest, and they respond, hey, this bread you're talking about that comes down from heaven, give us some of that bread. Fill our stomachs up again. We want to try some of that magical bread. Give us some of that stuff. And here's how Jesus responds in John 6, 35 to 41. I'm just going to read this, and I want you to hear it kind of the way that they heard it. Now watch this. They want him to multiply some more bread and fish, giving me some of that eternal food. Give me some of that bread, that, and I'll never be hungry again. And here's what he says. I am the bread of life. You actually want to have a piece of physical bread in your hand. That, you're going to get hungry in just a few hours. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And they're sitting there going, what? We just want some bread. You're talking about you? You're talking about you're the bread of life? We actually want some bread. You're talking about something different than what we're asking for. I know. 
He goes on, but I told you that you have seen me and still don't believe. Everyone whom the Father gives to me will come to me and I won't send anyone away who comes to me. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the one who sent me, that I won't lose anything he has given me, but I will raise him up on the last day. They're going, what? This is way beyond what we're actually asking for. I know, just listen. This is my father's will, that all who see the son and believe in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. What is all this raising up on the last day? You're the bread of eternity. We just want some food. We're hungry. We want something in our bellies. And the Jewish opposition, verse 41, grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. These are some deep things Jesus is presenting. Now watch this, verse 53. Jesus said to them, I assure you, and this blew their mind, unless you eat the flesh of the human one and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And listen to how the crowd responds. Remember, they're just wanting some literal food and he's talking about his body being food and his blood being drink. That freaks them out. This is how they respond. Many of his disciples, people who followed him, who heard it said, this message is harsh. Who can hear it? Now, before we go any further into the story, I want you to imagine how his closest disciples are feeling right now. Jesus is upending how they perceive God. He is elevating himself above Moses. He is claiming to be the embodiment of the manna God sent to the Israelites in the wilderness. If you know that story, remember when the Israelites were in the wilderness after they left Egypt, they were hungry and God sent manna and it rained down from heaven like this bread. And they went out every morning and they picked up the manna and they could eat it every single morning. And Jesus in his teaching that he just went through, he says, you know that manna that God rained down from heaven to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness? I am the manna for all the people of the world. I'm greater than that manna. In fact, I'm greater than Moses himself. Moses was their hero. He elevates himself above Moses and says, I am literally the manna that God rained down on the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. That causes some of their minds to be blown. This causes some of the a stir among the Jewish crowd and many of them begin to oppose what Jesus is saying. And instead of Jesus turning it down, he turns it up. He then says, not only am I the true bread of heaven, but unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be a part of what I'm doing. Now let's just pause for a moment. How would you respond if a spiritual leader stood in front of you and said something like this, the only way for you to be a part of what we're about is you're gonna have to eat my body and you're gonna have to drink my blood. How do you think you'd respond? Just like some of these people responded. Many of the disciples listening said, this is harsh, who can hear it? In our day and age, our vernacular, our lingo, we'd say, 
what is this guy talking about? I am so confused, I don't even know what he means. Jesus knew that the disciples were grumbling, and he said to them, does this offend you? And I can just imagine the disciples thinking to themselves, does this offend us, Jesus? You just said that your followers have got to cannibalize you, and you want to know if we're offended? What do you think, Jesus? People already think you're crazy, and now you're introducing eating your body and drinking your blood, and the only way you can be a part of this movement is to eat you and drink your blood. He didn't say he was sorry. He didn't back up and say, oh, okay, you know, you're right. Maybe I should come at this from a different angle. Maybe I am being a little confusing. You know what he does? He jumps headlong into thicker, more dense, more complicated theology. Listen to what he says in these verses. That is confusing, Jesus says. Well, verse 62. What if you were to see me going up to where I was before? In other words, what if God opened the heavens and you could see me in the heaven before I came down to earth? If you think that what I've said is complicated, if you think what I said blows your mind, can you imagine if you could see into the spirit realm? Verse 63, the spirit is the one who gives life and the flesh doesn't help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, yet some of you don't believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who wouldn't believe and the one who would betray him. Verse 65, he said, for this reason, I said to you that none can come to me unless the father enables him to do so. When he gets finished with that, I said all that I've said so far to get to this one verse. Watch how the people, the crowd, responds to Jesus' teaching. At this, many, not one or two, many of his disciples turned away and no longer accompanied him. One translation says, they turned and walked with him no more. And how did many disciples respond? They walked away. That's it, I'm out. Many came to a crossroads and said, this far, but no farther. Loving people, fine. Love that teaching, Jesus. Forgiving people, okay. Turning over a few traditions, no problem. I don't like some of those traditions myself. Multiplying bread and fish, cool. Walking on the water, love magic tricks. Eating your flesh, drinking your blood, no way I quit. And how do you think the 12 disciples felt at that very moment? What do you think they were thinking when this crowd of people begins to dissipate and walks with Jesus no more and they're still standing there kind of part of the inner circle? How do you think they felt in that moment? Well, I know people enough to have a little idea how they felt. Peter was thinking in today's lingo, here's kind of what he was thinking. I say this because here's kind of what I would have been thinking, and I'm pretty sure that he probably was thinking something like this. Wow, Jesus, that was deep. I'm, I'm not even sure what you just said. I get some of it, but some of it I'm still confused about. And that part about eating your flesh and drinking your blood, that is out there, sir. 
I mean, sometimes I feel like I get who you are and what you're about. Other times, I'm not so sure. Now we got people leaving. I mean, what's going on here? I mean, I, I thought you wanted to build a crowd. I thought you wanted to have like this mass of people following you. I, I, I thought you were going to build a kingdom, you know, that was going to last forever. And I figured we would get enough people together and eventually we could really do something amazing. And now people are walking away and you're not apologizing. You're not going after them. You're not trying to change the message. You're, you're, you're not re-explaining yourself. I mean, you just let them go. I mean, did I get myself into something that's going to fizzle out soon? I mean... Do those people who are leaving know something about this movement that I don't? I mean, am I crazy? Are they more wise than me? And as soon as some of the crowd turned away and walked away, I I think there was a dead silence among the 12. I, I think none of the 12 wanted to say anything. They were stunned, shocked, saddened that some of the people walked away and seriously evaluating everything. Wouldn't you? I mean, come on, don't act too holy. I mean, put yourself in this situation. If some of your friends, your friends, walked away from something, quit that something, judged what you were a part of as crazy, and thought you were off the deep end for staying, wouldn't you wonder just a little bit if maybe you were wrong? Wouldn't you at least stop for a moment and go, am I brainwashed? Wouldn't you stop for just a moment and think, okay, I love these people, and I, in fact, there's some really intelligent people among this crowd, and they're saying I'm nuts. Am I nuts? Am I off the deep end? I would. I mean, at least for a moment or two, at least for a day or two, I would sit there and work my way through this and go, okay, am I being deceived here? Am I crazy here? And in this silent moment, when the disciples were speechless and time felt as if it slowed down, in this moment, Jesus speaks. And we miss the passion of what he says because we just read it out of our English translations, but if you go to the original language, there's actually emotion in what Jesus says, and you have to read this next line in the most tender and gentle and compassionate way possible. And here's what Jesus says after the crowd walks away. I want you to picture this in your mind. Jesus gets finished with his teaching, and a whole bunch of people just turn and walk away. And Jesus is watching them walk away. His disciples are behind him. And he turns around to his disciples who are quiet, who are stunned, who aren't sure what's going on here. And here's what he says. Do you also want to leave? And you need to read it like this. You don't want to leave too, do you? It's a very tender very compassionate, very gentle way of saying, please tell me you're not also going to quit. Please tell me you're not going to call it quits too. And between this question and Peter's answer, 
inside the silent gap that could have lasted 5, 10, 20 seconds, we don't know. In this space is where most people quit. You're standing there. Your friends walk away. You're standing there. Emotion is swirling around you. You're standing there thinking, that's my sister over there. That's one of my buddies from high school. You're standing there in that moment, and this guy that you've been following, that you've based your life on, has said some pretty crazy things, and he turns to you, and he says, are you going to quit too? And in that moment, everything just slows down. Your whole life flashes before you because you've got to make a decision. You're at the crossroads. What are you going to do? Are you going to follow the crowd or are you going to stay put? And in that moment, in that moment, in that moment, is where a lot of people say, I'm out. In that moment is where a lot of people lose their mojo and never recover it again. And in that space is where true character is revealed. Maturity is measured. Separation between spiritual children and spiritual adults happen. Emotional self-control is exposed. And Peter's response says it all. A thousand volumes are crammed into just a few words. An eternal moment is birthed. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, please don't tell me you're going to go to. And Peter answered and said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are God's holy one. And folks, I'm telling you, in that response right there, I see at least three pieces of wisdom. Wisdom I have carried for years. Pieces of wisdom that has saved my sanity when I thought I was losing it. Pieces of wisdom that have stalled my failing faith and held me when the ground began to crumble under my feet. What can we do when standing alone, confused and uncertain about who or what to believe and what the future might hold? I'm gonna give you these three pieces of wisdom quickly, and I want you to deposit them into your soul. Number one, you gotta check your emotions. I want you to notice Peter took the focus off of the people leaving. Everything confusing or difficult that Jesus just said, he just pushed it all aside. Notice Peter ignored what was going on around him and instead evaluated how it all applied to him. He was able to ask himself in the middle of people arguing, quitting, fussing, and accusing, what do I believe? Not what do I feel, not what would be easier right now, but what do I believe? Where do I stand? What do I hold to? What am I going to do? 
Folks, one critical skill essential to you and me becoming mature disciples, effective and productive followers of Jesus is an ability to check our emotions at the door. Too many Christians allow emotions to lead them. They follow the teachings of Jesus when they feel like it. When life feels good, they attend church, get involved, invite others. When emotions are high and they feel positive, they're reading scripture, uh, stretching their faith. But when the emotions shift, when disappointment crises happen, um, when tension develops, they slow down, they question everything, they follow the crowd. And the same can be applied to marriage, to jobs, to raising kids, to getting an education, anything. Check your emotions at the door for you and me to be successful. We got to learn what it means to lead our emotions rather than our emotions leading us. Man, it's a good thing to take your emotions along for a ride in life. Emotions are good. Emotions are fun. But make sure they are not driving your car. Motions can go along for a ride, but they sit in the back seat and they look out the window. I'm driving. And there's a whole lot of us that put the emotions at the steering wheel and the emotions in our lives tell us where we're going to go. Well, how do I feel today? And then the emotions drive us anywhere the emotions want to take us. And guess where we end up? Wherever our emotions decide to take us. And that's why we're up and that's why we're down. That's why the crowd quit because they were confused in the moment and it didn't feel good. And Peter could look at the whole situation and say, you know what? It's not about my feelings right now. It's about where I stand and what am I going to do? Check your emotions. Number two, consider your options. This is huge. Listen to Peter's words. Where else are we going to go? When he said that, he didn't mean there is nowhere else for us to go because obviously the people went somewhere. He knew he had options out there. He didn't mean no one else will have us. He didn't mean we're stuck and can't go anywhere else. You know what he meant? Here's, here's what Peter meant in, again, our language today. Jesus, I've been hanging with you for quite a while now. And I've paid attention to every word you've spoken. I've considered everything you've said. I've listened to the arguments of your enemies and those with other alternatives. I know and I respect some of the people who walked away. They tried to convince me to walk away too. And I've considered it all. But I got to be honest. There's nowhere else to go. Not because I can't go anywhere or there are no options. I mean, I've considered all the options and nothing compares to this. No one speaks to my soul like you do. No one answers the deepest questions of life like you. You make everything else make sense. So when I consider my options, there really isn't anywhere else to go. You're it. This is it. I'm forever ruined to all other options. You hold the words of life, hope, purpose, meaning, justice, forgiveness. What you say makes more sense than anything else I've ever considered. Where else am I going to go? 
So let me ask you, Forest Park, let me, let me ask those watching online. Those of you who are considering walking away from whatever it is out there, what are your options? Those of you think, you know, I'm going to hang up this whole faith and God and all that. Okay, what, what are your options? A, a life with no ultimate meaning other than the one that you assign to it? Is that your option? A life with no objective morals than what the culture defines as moral? No genuine grace, mercy, forgiveness because no real injustices were done and there's no need for mercy and forgiveness if there's nothing to forgive. Nothing beyond what you see. We're merely chemicals reacting inside a bag of flesh and blood and bones. Love and purpose and meaning and morality are just ways to describe these chemicals and going off in our head and it's all just cultural biases. Is that your option? Is that what you're going to embrace? What are your options? What we need in Christianity and in marriages and in careers and in parenting and in a thousand other areas, what we need are people who consider their options and make decisions based on reality rather than based on fantasy or what's out there that might be better. Really? How do you know it's better? Check your emotions. Consider your options. Number three, rest on what you know. Here's what Peter says. A lot of things I don't know, but I know that you are the Holy One. There are a lot of things we don't know, Jesus. In fact, I can't say I understood a whole lot of what you just said. I mean, that, that eating flesh and drinking blood thing is still whew, way over here. But I know this. If there is a God, and I believe there is, then you are his son. That I know. I might be ignorant when it comes to a lot of other things, but I'm not ignorant when it comes to that. And I'm going to bet the farm on that one. Folks, one truth weighs more than a thousand lies. Follow what you know until what you can't see. Follow what you can see until what you can't see becomes more clear. Peter had every emotional reason to quit. Peter had many options in front of him. Peter had enough confusion to say, I'm out. But he, Peter had enough wisdom to not dial it in. Instead, he checked his emotions at the door. He considered his options. He held on to what was true. I'm telling you, this would change everything for some of us in this room. Some of us can't think straight right now because our emotions are swirling around us and we're caught up in the rapids of the emotions. And if we don't learn to lead our emotions, we're going to make a decision soon that we're going to regret the rest of our lives. Some of us haven't really considered our alternatives. Leave our careers, sometimes that's exactly what we should do. But have you really considered your options? Then what? Have the affair that feels so good right now? Then what? What about your spouse? What about your kids? What about your home? What about your future? Walk away from the faith? Where? What are your options? Which God will fill in the gap? Because there's many out there. 
Some of us are so focused on what we don't know and what we can't make sense of, we're letting go of what we do know. And when we're uncertain, we need to hold on to what we know. Don't let it go. Eventually, you'll come to a clearing and things will make much more sense. I believe when Peter was at the end of his life, old man writing the letters that we now consider scripture, I think he thought back to this moment. I think he thought back when Jesus came out of the tomb and it all started to get clear. I think he thought back when he stood in front of that massive crowd in Acts and he preached and 3,000 of them gave their lives to Jesus in one day. I think, I think Peter thought back when he was filled with the spirit and it says that just the shadow of Peter would pass by and people would be healed. I think he thought back to this moment and he thought, what if I'd have quit? What, what if I'd have dialed it in? What if I would have said, I'm done? What if I would have followed the crowd? But instead, he didn't let his emotions lead him. Instead, he considered his options and he stayed true and he held to what he knew. And eventually, it made sense. Let's pray. Father, you've given us this story today to open our hearts and open our minds and challenge us, but also encourage us. Because I think there are some people who are gathered in this room that are at that crossroads and they're debating and they're wondering and they just can't think straight. The emotions have just... It's been so flooding their life that everything seems blurry. And the only thing they know to do sometimes is just follow what a lot of other people are doing. Father, it's not always wrong to follow what other people are doing. Sometimes it's right. But what we need is discernment. What we need is in those moments to check our emotions and say, wait a minute, I need some wisdom right now. Wait a minute, I, I, I need some ability to stand and not allow the emotions to drive me. Father, sometimes we need our eyes open so that we can really check the options that are available to us. And sometimes our emotions will make certain options look so good. And God, we're all, every single person in this room right now has at least one illustration of when we followed our emotions and we made a stupid decision. Father, we need the ability to check them really consider our options. And sometimes when everything is confusing, to somehow move our way through all the maze of confusion and find that one truth, find that one thing that we absolutely know and hold on to it. Because right now it might seem foggy, right now it might seem dark, right now it might seem a little confusing. But if we will stand true, eventually things will clear up and eventually things will look a whole lot different and when the sun does come out and the clouds dissipate and we stand in a clearing, we're gonna be so happy we didn't give up. We didn't follow the crowd. We didn't go with what our emotions tried to tell us. Speak into our church, speak into our lives and help us recover the motivation we need, the inspiration we need, the wisdom we need to keep moving forward. We ask these things in the name of the one who gives these truths to us and who is the embodiment of truth, the name above every name, Jesus. Amen. Have a great day. So good to see you today. Bye.